This is the Honest CEO Show, hosted by the Honest CEO, Caroline Kennedy. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and motivated by the honest stories from passionate, extraordinary business people who share their ups and downs and their learnings on the journey to building success in business. Welcome, and thanks to our listeners for joining us today. My guest is Angela Ferguson. Angela is the MD of leading interior and architectural workplace design firm Future Space. As a woman in a male-dominated industry, Angela is creating pathways for other women to set up and achieve success. She is also focused on developing the next generation of workplace designers, helping them develop the skills and confidence to make it in a tough industry. Future Space works with some of the world's top companies, including American Express, Microsoft, Qantas, and Google. In the past year alone, Future Space has worked with KWC, EA Games, KPMG, REA Group, MYOB, and Magellan, to name a few. Welcome to the show, Angela. Thanks, Caroline. Tell us about Future Space. So Future Space, we are an architectural and interior design practice. We focus on creating physical environments that make a real difference in people's lives. So every one of us is either an interior designer or an architect by choice. We, um, we're not architects and designers because we couldn't get into law or medicine or anything like that. <laughs> and, um, and we all believe that people are the product of their environment. So everything we do is geared towards creating spaces that improve people's lives. And describe your design philosophy. Yeah, so my my design philosophy is really related to that. It's um, The reason I became a designer was because I'd seen, actually I'd seen offices, I'd seen other people's offices around, around town and I'd done work experience in an office and I thought, God, is, is this sort of where people work? Are these the types of spaces that people work in? And um, so I really wanted to be able to kind of have some control over the environment that I was potentially going to be working in, you know, in sort of five to ten years' time. And um, so I thought if I could uh, help other people as well, I thought becoming an interior designer would allow me to create spaces that were a lot more human and really gave people a good place to be at work because we do spend so much time at work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way we function at work, particularly nowadays, has completely changed. And future space and your designs are disrupting the nature of work, allowing people to work more productively, collaboratively and cohesively. What was the catalyst for the change in environment and design? We've always designed workspaces that are about improving people's lives at work. But I think it's only recently that the understanding of, you know, there's sort of general public understanding of that and businesses' understanding of that has really caught up to the type of work that we've been doing for a long time. So if you think about, you know, our working week in Australia, we have one of the longest working weeks in the world. We have 65% of Australians work more than 40 hours a week. And of that 65%, about a third of those work more than 50 hours a week. So people are working really long hours. And for us, it's so important to design spaces that, workspaces that are, you know, centred around the human being and give people a lot of choice and a lot of flexibility in the way that they work. 
Yeah. And through your designs, you are influencing how modern businesses operate, the work mm-hmm. behaviours and how businesses can tap into employees' creativity and innovation. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think um, so whenever we talk about workplace design, we talk about these three sort of tenets of uh, people, place and technology. So obviously we take care of the, the place side of things because it's focused on people. But the technology, I think, has really allowed us to design workspaces that are unlike anything we've ever seen before. So um, if you think about the way technology has evolved from really from the, you know, when the first personal computer was launched in the early 80s and how that really started to change the way that people thought about work and they thought about education And if you think of even just the way technology has advanced in the last five years and the way that we can do anything at anywhere, you know, at any time in any place in the world, it means that the whole meaning of the workplace has changed. So um, you don't have to go to a place to do a thing anymore. You can do that thing anywhere. So what we try and do with the types of workplaces we design is design spaces that have some sort of meaning for that business and that organisation. Yeah. Okay. And I think that that, you know, when when you talk about how you design, it also leads to a lot of people are working remotely nowadays as well. Mm. As you just said, you know, it doesn't matter where you are being able to work. So that would also have an influence on, I would say, the the space within an organisation, how much space they actually need nowadays as well. Yeah, definitely. And also what that space, what it's made up of. So um, we did a lot of work with Microsoft over the last few years. And so Pip Marlowe, who's the MD of Microsoft, she's been very vocal about um, the workplace and their workplace. And she says that workplace is a thing that you do, not a place that you go. So therefore you think, well, why does Microsoft need a workplace? But the reason they need a workplace is for people to come together. So the way that their workplace is made up is very different to say what it would have been 10 or 15 years ago. So they do need less space, but the type of space they need too is very different. They need spaces where people could come together, where they can collaborate, where they can share sort of face-to-face information and share knowledge that way. So uh, the technology is, is so great. It means they can work anywhere at any time, but the workplace that they come to, um, you know, has a lot of meaning for them. Yeah, and and I think meaning is a a good word to use when we think about the workplaces that are really focusing on productivity and culture as well within businesses because it's not just about here's your desk, get on with your job. It's about the creating a good culture and a collaborative environment where everyone's buying into. We're all working together to achieve X, Y and Z, whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, I've heard the term alternative work strategies defining your yeah. work. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, so really what that term means is it's really just about recognising that every organisation works in a very different way. They have different cultures. They have different, you know, whether they're a service-based or a product-based organisation Um, They want to achieve different things. They have different business plans. So what we try and do is come up with an alternative work strategy, which is an alternative to the way they're 
have perhaps been doing things in the past that is really aligned with the business and their performance and their people and their culture and some of the things they want to achieve. So there's no real cookie cutter approach to designing a workspace. A lot of what we do, we spend a lot of time understanding a business and a lot of time understanding, you know, that kind of their, their brand and their personality and then designing a workplace that's going to be really supportive of who they are as an organisation. So that's where that alternative work strategies comes into it because it's an alternative to perhaps what they've been doing in the past and the physical space hasn't caught up with, you know, the innovation or, you know, some of the disruption happening in the industry or, or some of the leadership that they, they want to demonstrate. Yeah. And out of interest, how do you go about understanding the brand and really understanding the people within an organisation to be able to come up with the designs? Yeah, we do a lot of work around, it's a lot of listening really. It's a lot of, um, we have a number of different things that we do and so we might go in, for example, on a Friday night or a Thursday afternoon or even a, a lunchtime to a brown bag presentation and we'll do a presentation to uh, like a town hall situation, so a big group of staff, and say to them and show them, this is what's happening in workplace around the world um, and this is what's happening in Australia. And Australia really does lead the way in workplace design. And so we'll, we'll give them some information on a, on a large scale and then we might spend some time talking to different groups within the business and talking to them about, you know, perhaps some of the frustrations they may have, you know, some of the things that work well, some of the things that don't work well. So we can spend, you know, anywhere between sort of, you know, four weeks and three months talking to an organisation to really understand them and understand what their challenges are and then use that information to uh, address some of their issues and then help them achieve some of their goals and design something that's for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you you really spend the time and it's part of the fundamentals of really understanding them so that you can deliver that solution that works for everybody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, I've also heard your work, you know, about activity-based workplaces. So tell us about that. Yeah, so an activity-based workplace is about, if you think about the way perhaps, you know, when the 90s as a graduate when people, or this is sort of my era, but as um, a graduate in the 90s, I came out of university and I started working in a design practice and I was shown my desk and that was my desk and that's where I spent the greater part of my day unless I went out to a building site or went and did something else outside of the office. Activity-based working is about people being able to come to work Uh, and deciding that, okay, today what I need to do is something really quiet and really focused. I've got a lot of reading to do today and a big report to read. So what I'll do is I'll go and take one of those really quiet spaces, maybe it's a small one- or two-person room, and I'll go and take that room and I'll use that room for the three or four hours that I need to be able to do that piece of work. And then after that, I might be sitting in a, a training session or a meeting in the afternoon. So... I can go and choose to, you know, work in a different part of the building. What I wanted to say about activity-based working is the reason that it's come about is because we do we do surveys. So we do occupancy surveys of workplaces and how often different settings are used. So we might spend a week surveying, physically surveying an office to see how often the meeting rooms are used, how often each desk individually is used, 
to see how often the common spaces are used. And what our research tells us on a consistent basis is that the office is vacant between 40 and 60% of the time. So an organisation is paying rent and heating and cooling this space between 40 and 60% of the time, it's not being used. So activity-based working is about providing a, a really kind of lean, agile environment that you know is high energy, has a lot of choice, has a lot of variety, and it's it's an environment that's designed around need rather than just uh, hope that it gets used well. Yeah, and I yeah. think that also the variety of what you've just described would lead to more innovation as well because you're thinking differently in different environments and you're not just sat at a desk all day every day without being exposed to different elements. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, you kind of, um, you know, all the research has shown that a different type of environment promotes a different way of thinking and you use a different part of your brain because you're turning on different neural pathways when you change spaces. So, We've worked with clients, um, particularly MYB, actually in Melbourne, who moved all of their software engineers and developers out of the head office into a warehouse space because they wanted to drive innovation. And they thought and they they knew that if they moved the software engineers and developers into this really dynamic warehouse environment, it would really help with that energy and creating new things and designing sort of innovation into their practices so the stimulation that would occur exactly Yeah. yeah 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 Now, culture is a critical element for any business and more businesses are beginning to recognise and focus on culture as a performance enhancer. How are you seeing workspace design impact and influence culture? Yeah. Um, So the way workplace design impacts and influences culture is really around designing things and elements into the environment that's going to promote the good behaviours and the good um, relationships that people want to promote. So, for example, with MIB, we actually included in the cafe, we've got a table tennis table, we've got an old arcade game. There's a few different things that people can do to kind of interact and engage with each other and maybe have some conversations or some healthy competition with people they may not normally talk to and so they're using these types of, you know, fun elements and the games to create relationships. And if you can create these new relationships within the business, then you can potentially create new products and new services. And again, it, it leads to innovation. So um, culture is a massive part of work because, again, you know, it's like you've probably heard the phrase, you know, I've got a, a work husband and a work wife and a work family. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, we are spending a lot of time at work. So the culture... And, you know, having people feel like they belong to something, I think, is such an important part of workplace design. Yeah, absolutely. And I think culture nowadays is being recognised, as I mentioned before, as an, you know, an enhancer for performance, but also the environment you work in is as important and is part of the process, I think. Mm. And it has to be appropriate too. So, for example, you wouldn't um, say put a table tennis table into a, you know, a very formal banking environment or, do you know what I mean? It has to kind of, a lot of clients actually come to us and they say, we want to be like Google. <laughs> and I will always say to them, well, listen, you're not Google. You are your own unique 
brand and identity. And I think whatever we have to do in your workplace has got to be aligned with with you and your culture and the types of permissions that you have around these sorts of engagements and activities. So authenticity is a big part of that that cultural piece as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I find it quite interesting that you said before about not putting a table tennis into a formal banking environment. Well, perhaps that's what they need to um, to be relevant. Do you know what I mean? Like never say yes. never, I think, because relevance is so important as well because as we evolve and as workplaces evolve and the market evolves, you've you've got to look at how you can remain relevant and there are so many elements to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, congratulations. You were the recipient of the Narwick 2012 New South Wales Women in Construction Businesswoman of the Year Award. For your holistic approach to the management of future space. So tell us a little bit about what that meant to you and I suppose the impact that it had. Yeah, I think for me, um, it's an interesting one, actually, because my husband is my business partner and he will often, because I, I do enter awards and he will say, why do you do this? You know, it's like, you know, you do a good job. And it's like, yeah, I do know I do a good job. But I think um, sort of being female in a pretty blokey industry, and I know I'm not alone here, I think we're in a position where women need to we do really need to kind of shout out about our achievements and we do need to speak up a lot more often. So for me, um, kind of winning that award and getting the acknowledgement that, you know, I'm one of the few women running architectural and interior design businesses in Australia and, um, you know, bringing that sort of to the public's attention, I think that was really important for not only for me but also to be able to, you know, say to the industry, look, you know, there are some women doing some amazing things here. And that awards program, that Narwick Awards program does a really good job of doing that. Yeah. And I think on the flip side of that as well is demonstrating that it is possible for other women to enter male-dominated industries because I know, I mean, I ran a building company and Mm. a large franchise building company, so construction. And initially, you know, people would say, but you're a female. And actually, I found the environment to be one very open to, I suppose, uh, gender, no matter what your gender is, it's about getting the job done. We can stereotype type uh, the industries that we go into because it is deemed challenging to go into a male-dominated industry, yet so many females are actually doing it and doing it very well. So I think it's important to be able to say, I, you can do it too. It is possible and inspire other women. Yeah, that's exactly right. Which is yeah. what you are doing. So good on you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Now, you run a mentoring program to educate and upskill the junior staff within Future Space. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, this is something I'm really, really passionate about, actually, because what I've seen happen in our industry over the last you know, five to 10 years is that graduates will come out of university and they will you know, start their new job and nobody spends any time with them. So the other people that they're working with, the more senior people in the organisation, aren't teaching them things, they're not sharing knowledge. Um, you know, and and the pe- we're sort of getting uh, staff come to us who've been out for sort of two or three years. And some of the basic skills that I would expect that they have, 
because they have had some work experience they don't have. And um, I've been really lucky in my career in that my first job, I had a lot of on-the-job training and my boss was really hardcore and he was really hard on me, but I learned a lot. And then my, my next job after that, I had a really great mentor. So I've had a lot of people teach me along the way. And I've seen a lot of, I've seen that not happen as much anymore in our industry. And I think it's because we're so busy um, you know, technology has placed more demands on, on what we do. And so there's not a lot of that sharing of knowledge and information. I really feel like the quality of the industry as a whole is, is degrading. So for me, what we've done is we started beginning of this year a mentoring program where we had the six most senior people in the business do a six-week stint with the probably 12 youngest people in the business and newest people in the business do a six-week stint for an hour a week um, on their specific topic of expertise. And, and so because the six most senior people in the business have all got very different bents and very different focuses, they've been able to share this amazing kind of knowledge with our junior and mid-level staff. And it's actually been a really incredible thing to watch. So I've seen, I've seen them talk about this to their peers outside of our office. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, we've had... Um, some of the juniors say to us that you know their mates who are working at a similar level to them are all really jealous that they don't you know they don't have this mentoring program that we do. The other thing I think that's really important about the mentoring program is we kick off with a little bit of our own background and history, so the staff can see that you know I didn't just kind of appear in my managing director job. I actually worked really hard to get where I am today. And, um, you know, I've got a lot of sort of experience and, and hard yards behind me to be able to get to where I am. So it's always helpful for them, to, for them I think, to see you in context. But the mentoring program is going really well. And what we're now starting to do is more coaching too within the business. So I am in the new year, myself and one of the other senior women are taking a couple of smaller groups of other women and doing weekly sessions, more coaching sessions with them. And it's a little bit this sort of, you know, behind closed doors type notion where it's, you know, what's, what happens in the room stays in the room. And um, so it's really just about, you know, bringing the other people in the business, and they are predominantly women, but bringing the other people in the business up and teaching them and sharing our knowledge and sharing our skills and, um, you know, kind of being able to give something back to the industry to create a better industry as a whole. Yeah. And I think investing in and developing your teams is such a critical aspect of workplace uh, nowadays more so, but it's also, you know, creating the culture, but investing in people's success, so setting people up for success. And what yeah. I hear is that, you know, you really value your teams and you're saying, as a leader, I recognise that I have a responsibility to these people and to help them develop and grow and continue to, I suppose, educate them as well. Because you're right, it, you know, nobody ever got to a CEO or a managing director or an executive role straight away out of university. It takes time and it, and it also takes people to help you along the way. I mean, as you said, you've had many people help you. I've had many people help me as well. And a lot of businesses fail to recognise that though and so good on you because, uh, you know, I can imagine that 
the people within your business are grateful for the opportunities as well and then you get longevity and you also get they're more aligned to the business as well yeah definitely and the other thing too is like the type of work we do is we're not just picking colors and you know throwing cushions around it's actually really you know we're trusted with you know big massive property decisions big massive budgets and you know we need to be able to do this stuff well not just kind of you know we're not flitting around you know picking colors and and, you're making things look pretty there's kind of a a bigger story to it than that so I, I need my staff to be really I guess indoctrinated into that and, and really kind of educated about the types of things that they do and the types of design decisions that they make. Yeah and it's part of the process for succession planning as well isn't it you know moving people and developing them through the ranks and making sure that they have the skill yeah. and the ability to meet the expectations of you as an organisation but also as for the client as well. Mm. Yeah. Now, what are what are the biggest lessons you've learned in business? Um, biggest lessons I've learned in business. I think the biggest one for me most recently has been around, and recently I mean in the last few years, has really been around authenticity. So I, um, I had my own business before. So Stephen Manette is my husband and he and I own Future Space together. And so pre, prior, so October 09 is when I merged my business with Stephen's business. And when I did that, I thought, because I had this sort of, you know, much smaller business that was, you know, very uh, creative. It was still very professional. Um, because it was just me, I didn't feel like I had to um, kind of conform to anybody or anything. And so I just kind of followed my own path and, and made my own decisions and it did really well. It was very successful. And I joined my business with Future Space because Stephen and I obviously have similar similar connections and, you know, we know similar people. And it was getting really hard to explain why they were separate and we were just more and more aligned and on the same path. But when I did merge, I thought, oh, you know, well, now I'm part of this, this much bigger thing and I'm going to have to be a bit, you know, I'm going to have to be a grown-up <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, kind of be more corporate and, and more... I don't know, just, you know, I'm part of this big thing now. I've just sort of got to be different. And I thought I didn't, I thought I had to be different than who I was. And it kind of took me a couple of years to really figure out that that wasn't the case. And I could still be myself and, and kind of be confident being myself. And, um, yeah, so that, that kind of, that was a big lesson for me around, you know, being authentic and not trying to be all things to all people and just following kind of organically, I guess, what was true for me and what was right for me. And, you know, since I've done that, I think our business has just grown from strength to strength. We've had an amazing few years, the last, you know, two years, two and a half years. We've achieved some incredible things. So that lesson, I think, around authenticity is is one that has made such an impact in, in my career and my life. Yeah, that's definitely a good one. I think, uh, you know, I I write a lot about because I'm exposed to people that say they wear masks when they go to work yeah. and certainly it's something that I have had experience doing as well. So, you know, you, you think that there's this expectation that you need to co- conform to be X, Y and Z. So, you know, in corporate you need to be hard and you need to be tough and if you want to make it as a female. But what I came to realise is that you lose yourself 
and there is a mask, but when you step into being the authentic you and bringing your heart, you have such a bigger impact. And I think a lot of businesses could learn from that. And certainly our listeners, you know, have a lot of the small businesses. And I think just being you is really true because people want to work with and, and buy from people that they trust and people that they are just being natural and being who they are. And that's so important. So that, that is a very good lesson, I think. Yeah. We also have um, a lot of our corporate clients during the briefing process. One of their goals will be we want our staff to be able to bring their whole selves to work. So, and I think so. I think corporates are starting to realise that that sort of goal around authenticity. And so, a lot of the work we do is about you know, well, what does that mean then in the workplace that you allow people to bring their whole self to work? So, that could mean things like providing prayer rooms or meditation rooms or you know, different types of health and um, well-being initiatives and that sort of thing. So I think it's, for me, it's really encouraging to see that happening on a, on a bigger scale as well, that sort of quest for authenticity. Yeah, I completely agree. And as a business leader, what advice do you have for anyone struggling in business? Um, well, I think we've, you know, we've had good and bad times in our business. And I think all you can do at any given time is to do the next right thing. So, yeah, I think if whether it's, I mean, there's different types of struggles. You know, there's the the economic struggle, that constant worrying about where the next project or the next job. And then there's also the the struggle of when the work's busy, how, you know, when things are busy, how are you going to resource the, the project? But, yeah, so I think you've just got to keep, putting one foot in front of the other and keep doing what you think is the next right thing. You know, keep on that path of doing what you do and why you do it and what, what you know, what your beliefs are around why you're doing what you do. Yeah, that's very true. And I think, you know, like making sure that the value, your values are aligned with what you do as well is so important, especially for anyone really struggling. Yeah. yeah. And even if it all does go to hell, you know, like I've had times when I um, first started my business and I thought, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen is that it 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 doesn't work out and I have to go and get a job. Yeah. Well, I know I'm very employable. So, you know, I think people always have options. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> One of my key sayings is give it a go. If it doesn't work, change it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And what keeps you up at night? Um, <laughs> I'm a born warrior. <laughs> and I always have been. God, there's, you know, how long have you got? But um, from a business point of view, the things that keep me up at night really, it's probably the staffing thing, the people side of things. I think that's the probably the hardest thing of running a business is is managing people. I find that usually there's probably about three staff members who all have issues that they may need help with at any given time and sometimes it feels a bit like that game whack-a-mo you know with the the little beavers popping up out of the holes and once you whack one down another one pops up but yeah I think the staff thing is the thing that worries me the most there's once I think you know everything's kind of running smoothly something else will will happen and pop up and that's probably the biggest challenge. Yeah people management is an ongoing challenge for any business you know with with circumstances, what people need help with, their expectations, etc. So it is something that I think a lot of businesses are challenged with, no matter how big or small they are. 
And finally, what does the future look like for you? Um, well, it's interesting actually because I always feel like I always feel like I'm just beginning. So I'm still just beginning, even though we've managed to achieve quite a lot. Well, it is, you know, it's December, it's the end of the year. So I'm looking forward at the moment to a bit of a break in January because it has been quite a busy year and just kind of re-energising and getting ready for 2017. So we've got this year, I think, we have got some really interesting projects on the cards, but we've also just had PwC this week in Melbourne move into their client experience spaces and uh, around sort of January, February, they'll be moving into their Sydney spaces in Barangaroo. And I think for 2017, I'm really excited to be able to start telling the stories about these projects because they are really groundbreaking. It's un- they're unlike anything we've ever seen before in terms of workplace design. So when I talk about workplace design, I'm talking about the places where people work, so the you know where the desks and the meeting rooms and the quiet rooms and those spaces are. The projects that we've just designed for PwC are four floors in each city with a big interconnecting stair of client experience spaces. So the way that we've workplace evolution in Australia in the past 20 years has been you know revolutionary. The most amazing, incredible things have happened, but they're really only in the places where the people are. So if you think about the places where an organisation will meet with its clients, nothing has really changed that much in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. We still meet with people in, in a room with four walls and a table and some chairs and a, maybe a video screen. These projects that we've done for PwC have been completely disrupted that process. So we've designed these two incredible spaces that are the very best of hotel and hospitality and concierge and technology like you would see in the Minority Report movie, really interactive, engaging, co-creative spaces that allow PwC to kind of disrupt the way that they engage with their clients. So those are just coming online now. And for, for me, 2017 is going to be about, you know, telling the stories of these really complex, really innovative, really disruptive environments. Wow. I'd love to have a look at one of those. <laughs> oh, definitely. If you're, yeah, are you Sydney or Melbourne based? Melbourne. Yeah, so we can definitely get you down to have a look through Melbourne because I was there this week when they moved in on Monday and it was just, it was incredible. It was like a massive party and high energy and such a vibe and such a buzz. And I was sort of texting my client saying, how's day two going? And she said, it's just, it's continuing on. So yeah, it's pretty amazing. Great. Well, I'll have to touch base with you in the new year and arrange that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Angela. I really appreciate it. And I wish you a restful and safe (laughs) best of season. Thanks. Thanks, Caroline. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to The Honest CEO Show with Caroline Kennedy. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe on iTunes for your weekly dose on all things business. We've also made it easy for you by linking the subscribe to button on the virtual executive website. Caroline shares free business tools and resources there too. And if you're stuck and need some advice, book a free 30-minute session with Caroline or one of her team. Go to www.virtualexecutive.com.au and check it out.